A year or so ago, I was asked to write the introduction to the new Farrah Strauss and Giroux edition of The Moviegoer. Now, uh, some of you, maybe most of you, know the story of The Moviegoer and how it fits into Walker Percy's uh, body of work. He'd uh, been writing philosophical essays. He wrote a couple of novels that um, didn't get published. Then, uh, and I'll circle back to this, he wrote Confessions of a Moviegoer, which found its way to the publisher Alfred Knopf. was radically edited. The title was abbreviated to the moviegoer. The hyphen was taken out. That survived on the jacket. And it was published. And Mr. Knopf, who had a personal interest in the firm at that time, uh, had a number of favorites on the list that year, especially the Chateau by William Maxwell, who was the fiction editor of The New Yorker. National Book Award time came around, and Knopf uh, nominated and made a push for The Chateau by William Maxwell. He didn't do a thing for a moviegoer, but uh, A.J. Liebling was sent the book because he had written a biography of Earl Long, the uh, mayor of or governor of Louisiana, and was known to have an interest in, in things pertaining to Louisiana. And he called the book to the attention of his wife, Jean Stafford, and she was on the uh, jury or panel for the National Book Awards that year. So it wasn't formally nominated, but it was considered for the prize. And then the prize day came, and uh, what do you know? The moviegoer won the prize. And there was a reception, and Mr. Knopf uh, didn't uh, seem to take any pleasure in the fact that his own firm's book had won because he had favored a different uh, book by his pal Maxwell, the fiction editor of The New Yorker. So Percy, although a gentleman, uh, felt this uh, um, lack of support, and either at that reception or sometime shortly afterward, uh, he met Robert Giroux, who had, had a few years earlier joined Farrah, Strauss, and Cuddy, and it became Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux. Well, one thing led to another, and Percy went over to Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux, and the rest of his books were published with Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux. His fiction, The Message in the Bottle, Lost in the Cosmos, posthumous collection of essays and interviews. Um, so everything was all together, except for the moviegoer, which, not um, unimportantly, is, is the biggest seller of them all. So FSG wanted to get the book back, and they um, worked it and worked it and worked it, and they finally gained the rights. And I don't understand the process fully, but when you want to do a new edition, you have to have new material. And that's one of the reasons why these afterwards and introductions figure into books. Uh, this figures into the story of a great, another great Catholic writer, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, her novel, Wise Blood, you know, now considered a classic, sold poorly and went out of print with Harcourt Brace. So uh, FSG wanted to bring it back into print. They needed new material. She wrote an um, author's note to the new edition, which is a masterpiece of practical self-criticism. It, it, it's not 200 words, but it has directed most of uh, traditional understanding of Wiseblood for the subsequent 40 years. This paragraph that she wrote in a day to uh, satisfy the copyright needs of the publisher. Anyway, so now FSG has a need for new material for the new edition of the moviegoer. Well, as far as I can tell, um, a big-time novelist was asked and stood aside. And then somebody big in the film industry was asked and stood aside. And this is, this is the, the cultural pecking order. You know, film, novel, and then the, the critic is asked. <laughs> And the critic says yes. So, uh, uh, you know, I got the assignment. And I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do with this? Uh, because one of the things I most keenly came to understand writing The Life You Saved Maybe Your Own is the power of the incidental writing by the protagonists, the piece that I just mentioned by Flannery O'Connor. Or just in the case of Walker Percy, Two of the introductions that he wrote are, are two really consequential pieces for our understanding of Walker Percy. One is his essay about his uncle Will, uh, the 
the cousin who raised him after his father committed suicide and his mother died in a car accident. That piece, which is central to all the biographies, uh, it's there in his book of posthumous essays, was written in connection with the republication of Uncle Will's book, Lanterns on the Levee. In the same way, uh, Percy's sense of himself as kind of in midstream of Southern writing between the old Southern writers and contemporary writers is, is best articulated in his piece about John Kennedy Toole in a Confederacy of Dunces. Now, this novel uh, was written by Toole, a gifted eccentric in Louisiana who killed himself and was brought to Percy by uh, Toole's mother. And Percy didn't think anything was going to come of it, but it turned out to be a really good book. Uh, it wound up being published, and Percy wrote a book that, uh, or wrote a piece that framed the novel for the public. And that book uh, won, I think it was either the National Book Award or the Pulitzer Prize. Point is, if you're going to write an introduction or an afterword, don't waste waste the opportunity. This is not uh, a finger exercise. You've got to really try to do something with it. Uh, so I set out and said, what, what, can I, what can I do? Thinking in terms of Percy's uh, vocabulary, there are philosophical terms that he kind of half borrowed from Kierkegaard that figure into the moviegoer and into some of his subsequent uh, philosophical writing. The rotation, the repetition, uh, the vertical search. After all this time, I'm still not altogether sure just, just what the repetition is or just what the rotation is. Repetition seems to be going back to an old place to see it new and see whether you can recover the old effect or whether it affects you differently. Rotation, you deliberately go into a new space in order to have a new experience. And there's this thing he calls the zone crossing or boundary crossing where you go into an area where you don't belong, like um, a neighbor's house where you've not been invited and, and usual manners are abandoned and you're able to see each other in a new way. In any case, I thought, what am I going to do? A rotation or a repetition? I'm not really sure, but I definitely had the goal, um, how can I revisit this novel and Percy and our sense of him so that 60 years on, the sense of its freshness and power is conveyed to people who, who don't know the biography, who don't know a lot of the history that I've gone through, who don't know Percy's relationship to an old Southern uncle or to Flannery O'Connor or to medicine or to uh, um, practical philosophy. Uh, what can I do? So I did what a writer in this field um, invariably does, and I looked to Flannery O'Connor. You can't go wrong with Flannery. You know, you can just quote her, and, uh, and you, have, you have the... Uh, her, her words are, are better and funnier and more charming than most of ours. So uh, I looked to Flannery try to think about this novel and how to understand it, see it, see it all over again. Now, O'Connor um, characterized the literature of the American South in mid-century as a literature set against the typical. In O'Connor's view, there's no typical Southern novel, and that's a good thing. For her, the best Southern novel is atypical, just as life in the South, at least in her time as she saw it, was atypical of American life as a whole. The atypical Southern novel that she celebrated takes unusual, extreme, even grotesque behavior as its starting point. Such a novel is rooted, she explained, in, and here I get to go into the Southern uh, you know, cadence of Flannery O'Connor, some experience which we are not accustomed to observe every day, or which the ordinary man may never experience as an ordinary life. She always uses the masculine pronoun also. Yet the characters have an inner coherence if not always a coherence to their social framework. Their fictional qualities lean away from typical social patterns towards mystery and the unexpected. Aha. So how is it that the moviegoer leans away from the typical towards mystery and the unexpected? Because that's what I think it does. And so but how exactly does that work? And, and how did Percy bring it about? Well, first of all, he, 
he leaned away from the atypical Southern novel that O'Connor celebrated. Uh, typically, those novels of the South have something of the heightened quality that is called Gothic. Um, the moviegoer, unlike those novels, becomes atypical through its scrutiny of the typical. It takes ordinary experience, what Binks Bowling calls everydayness, and makes it the subject of fitful philosophical inquiry. It promises a typical moviegoer, anyway the title does, but delivers the inimitable Binks Bowling. It calls literary categories to mind by leaning away from them. It's a Southern novel, but one that makes scant reference to the Civil War, to racial conflict, to old houses and barrel-aged whiskey and the notion of the South as a place where people sit around telling tall tales on front porches, people whose tragic history somehow binds them together. It's a novel of New Orleans, but the protagonist winds up missing Mardi Gras for a stockbroker's convention in Chicago. It's a Catholic novel. The main action concludes on Ash Wednesday, and yet one whose main character considers himself not much of a Catholic at all, but a skeptic whose unbelief, he says, was invincible from the beginning. One who tells us, I have only to hear the word God and a curtain comes down to my head. The moviegoer is a distinctly American novel, but one that stands apart from the main line of the novel, from Hawthorne to Twain to James and Wharton, and then to Fitzgerald, Hemingway, and Willa Cather, the double helix of innocence at home and innocence abroad. Its key antecedents are the European existentialists Kierkegaard, Sartre, and Camus, the latter two of whom were also important for Ralph Ellison, who drew inspiration from them a decade before Percy in writing Invisible Man. It's a novel of the search, the pilgrim's search outside the self rather than the guru's search within, Percy liked to say. But without the usual signposting, there's no journey to a strange culture, no savvy guide, no sloughing off of oneself and taking on of another, no raft and river, no feasting or fasting, no new world at the end of the journey. There's just the everydayness of Binks's life in New Orleans and the slight diversion of an overnight train ride. It's a coming-of-age novel, but one whose protagonist is nearly twice the age of Huck Finn and Holden Caulfield. Binks is about to turn 30, an age by which American men of mid-century were expected to have settled into their adult lives. He's a college graduate, a veteran, a stock and bond broker, and yet his self is left over, as Percy puts it. Nearing 30, Binks is gripped by the possibility of the search as if for the first time. All these qualities together in my encounter with the novel, both here in the neighborhood in the early 90s and a year or so ago as I you know, took it up again to, uh, to, to write this afterward, is that the, the novel is, uh, is still strange after all these years. Uh, reams of criticism have written about it. It won the National Book Award. It jump-started the career of an author. It's the foundation, in, in my reading, for a whole um, field of the contemporary American novel that's typically written in the present tense has a sort of disaffected low-energy protagonist who's uh, submerged in the everyday and that has um, that develops toward the, 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 the briefest and, and subtlest of epiphanies. I'm thinking in particular of Richard Ford's novel, The Sports Writer, which is expressly modeled on the moviegoer. Sport, moviegoer, sports writer, Moviegoer as watcher, sports writer as watcher, uh, Southern uh, average man, so-called, who tends to be intensely philosophical, even so. Uh, so, uh, it's, so there it is, the kind of headwaters of a certain kind of American fiction, and yet itself, it, it's 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 still a strange book. It's a mysterious book. So Percy. Uh, 
The book wins the prize. He goes to the National Book Award ceremony. Um, and he, he gives a statement, which as far as I can tell, he'd written in advance, uh, that explains what he's up to. And he makes some remarks about the novelist as diagnostician. Percy was a medical doctor and a pathologist studying, um, studying disease. And he saw himself as, as a novelist um, who was diagnosing the sickness of American society, or contemporary society. Uh, so he, he gestures toward that, and he kind of backs away from it. And then summing up, he says that the novel is a modest restatement of the Judeo-Christian idea that man is more than an organism and environment, more than an integrated personality, more even than a mature and creative individual, as the phrase goes. He is a wayfarer and a pilgrim. But that's a powerful and beautiful statement. That, too, uh, has, has powered a great deal of um, criticism having to do with Percy and powered two biographies, and it informs my group portrait you know, pretty strongly. Uh, writer as pilgrim, contemporary uh, person as pilgrim, uh, narrative as pilgrimage. My book is subtitled The American Pilgrimage. You know, we've gotten a lot out of this particular formulation. But reading it, having just reread The Moviegoer, you know, this is last year, I was really struck by the gap between the, the, the confident, robust authority of that statement and the much more enigmatic quality of the novel itself. Uh, and I went back to the biography then just to, um, to think a little bit about this. So, and some of you may know this, this material, but uh, Percy had um, trained as a doctor, trained as a pathologist, uh, was working at Bellevue, contracted tuberculosis, went upstate New York and Connecticut to Sanatoria, spent, by his own account, a couple of years on, on his back, unable to do things. It was wartime also. Read a lot of philosophy and European fiction and kind of got up a novelist. Then he took 10 years trying to sort out how that works. Became a Catholic, married, moved out of New Orleans to the pleasant non-place of Covington, Louisiana. And uh, while he was writing these two novels, what he called A Bad Imitation of uh, Thomas Mann and Even Worse Imitation of Thomas Wolfe, which is very bad indeed, he was also writing some very good indeed philosophical essays. Because they were published years later in The Message in the Bottle, it's hard to understand just how, um, how strong they were in, that they preceded his, uh, the achievement that, for which we know him, the moviegoer. They were written in the 50s. They were um, published in places from Partisan Review to Thought, the Philosophical Quarterly of Fordham. Um, really, really strong stuff. And material that um, had the kind of apodictic statements that I just read to you about man as a wayfarer and a pilgrim and kind of worked them out. What is a particular person um, riding on a commuter train in New Jersey? Uh, what, what sort of zone is that person in? What does it mean to carve your initials into a picnic table as a statement of your existence, which is a kind of almost like biblical parable-like quality, you know, of that what we're doing with what what creative people or expressive people are doing with our lives. We're trying to say I exist by carving our initials into that picnic table. Uh, so he was working out ideas in these essays, and then, um, but. His sense of, of, of what a writer does, and this owed in part to his philosophy and owed in part to his Southern upbringing, was that uh, communication is intersubjective. You don't write for yourself. You write to, to reach another person, and it takes two to make a truth, and then you dicker over that truth, and you, you figure something else out. So he, his philosophical essays were diminished by the lack of an audience. So. He turns to fiction. Uh, one of his daughters um, uh, can't hear. So she, the, the school where, that, where she could be educated anyhow was in New Orleans. 
So he bought a small house in New Orleans, and he would um, drive her to school across Lake Pontchartrain, and then he would go to the house near the school for the day and, and write. So for the first time in his adulthood, he wasn't surrounded by influence and the anxiety of influence. His books were back across the lake. He was in an empty uh, house, him and, and his, his protagonist, uh, Binks Bowling. So he's, circumstance and other things kind of push him into this place where he, he's working in the dark. He's not working from other texts. Uh, he doesn't quite know what he's doing. And uh, he comes up with the novel that uh, a strong edit by the film reviewer and editor Stanley Kaufman later is The Moviegoer. So, although we've read the novel, or many, many of us have read the novel in terms of Percy's self-exegesis, that it's a modest restatement of the Judeo-Christian idea that man is much more than an organism and environment, more than an integrated personality, more even than a mature and creative individual, as the phrase goes. Here's a little bit of snark in that, as the phrase goes. Like, he's just so confident what he's done with this novel. Maybe that's the way you can talk after you've won the prize. But what I'm trying to recover is the sense that, he, that as he wrote this novel, he wasn't so sure about what he was doing. He was kind of figuring out. He was deep, deep inside the mystery. So here, at this point in my revisiting or return or uh, repetition of the moviegoer, I think of this distinction that I've um, gone back to again and again over the years, writing and teaching and talking about writing when I was an editor with FSG. And it's a distinction that Jung made in his really remarkable autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And when I uh, turned to it this time a year ago, I realized Memories, Dreams, Reflections was uh, put together in the late 50s at the request of um, Kurt Wolf, an American publisher, and Jung wrote a few early chapters, and the rest was done in interviews in the late 50s. The point is that Jung, in working out things like the distinction I'm about to present, was working at the very moment that Flannery O'Connor was musing about how Southern fiction leaned away from the typical towards mystery and the unexpected. And when Percy was working in the dark trying to figure out what this guy, Binks Bowling, was going to do with his life, at the same moment, there was Jung um, uh, making a distinction between um, two kinds of psychological novel. There's the psychological novel that's about psychological processes. And I should really look at the book, because I've used this distinction so many times that I may have um, maybe a bit worn at the edges. But as I recall, that the, the exemplar of that kind of psychological novelist was Henry James. It's about, the, about psychological processes, which, which the intelligent novelist is sort of trying to apprehend on the page. And uh, against that, he said, the novel that is itself a piece of psychology, like a, a piece of the author's mind or a piece of the author's psyche, uh, an extruded uh, inner life. And his examples of that one was Ryder Haggard, and I don't know Haggard's work well. And the other, as I recall, was Moby Dick, a novel that is itself a piece of psychology. To, to me, I, I, the reason I found this distinction so useful is because most um, imaginative work is some combination of the two. And you can, and often the matter of making the work what it ought to be is to kind of push it more in one direction and push it more in the other and to to achieve the right balance between one or the other. A, t a, t a totally extruded piece of psychology needs to become a little clearer, or a novel that's overly analytic needs to um, go into the mystic, you know. Well, in the case of, I'd like to apply this distinction to a distinction that was really important for the Catholic writers of Percy's generation, really, especially Percy and O'Connor, and that's the idea of mystery. There's all sorts of preconciliar um, uses of the word mystery. Uh, let me just, for efficiency's sake, use the, the term. O'Connor uh, re referred to it as the mystery of our position on Earth. That's, that's the mystery that the contemporary novelist with Christian concerns is trying to address. 
the mystery of our position on Earth. Percy, uh, for him, it was the mystery of variously of human unhappiness, the mystery of our inability to um, make sense of ourselves, that we can be like Hegel living outside of the mansion of our own philosophy, that we understand everything about human life except what it means to be born, to be a human being, to live, and to die. The mystery, how can that be? That's the, and, and why are we so unhappy as a result of that? That's the mystery that preoccupied Percy. So uh, to go back to the Jung distinction, so I think the, the novels that I'm suspecting interest people in this room are in varying degrees novels that are about mystery and novels that are mysterious. And I want to just take a quick jog through the work of these two writers so we can um, try to define what I mean a little bit better. For me, Flannery O'Connor's short fiction is mysterious. It's not really about, it's about people doing weird stuff in the South, but it's very mysterious. Wise Blood is, is, is about, about the mystery of, um, of how a person can reject his way to God, but it remains mysterious. It has these odd skips and gaps that were detected by the editor from the earliest version. Violent Barrett away. It's mysterious, but it's, it doesn't really add up. I don't think that novel works. And the mystery has to do partly with the fact that it's just not, not an achieved work. But it's also, there's this overdetermined sense in the book that it must be about the mystery of baptism and the mystery of vocation, which is like a you know, heavy hand on the back of poor Tarwater as, as he um, tries to do his thing. So Flannery O'Connor's criticism, you know, ostensibly it's about mystery. Her executors even called the book of her criticism Mystery and Manners and took a quote of hers and, and made it into a formula that has been applied endlessly by people who write about O'Connor. To me, as much as it's, and it's powerfully about mystery, but it's equally or more mysterious, how is it that this person in her early 30s living in the South speaks with you know, from the papal chair, so to speak, about Catholic aesthetics with such confidence, such unsourced authority. Uh, it's so, I'm, I'm, I still haven't gotten over the effect of that book the day I bought it in London in 1986. I mean, it just, how does she know this and when did she get it? And, and, and how do I get just a small piece of that thing that, that, that she seems to know so well, even though she died, you know, young. How, how, what's going on there? And in a similar way, the letters there, she's incredibly clear in her explanation of what she's trying to do, but the, the like literary power of the letters is what's so mysterious. This is a person who's dying for much of the time in which these letters were written, and they're just radiant with vitality and, and life. Uh, it's just mysterious. So moving on to Percy. So I think the moviegoer, which is about about mystery, you know, what um, what? How do we figure out what we're supposed to do with our lives? Is it possible to really know, or do we just decide because society tells us? But it's really more a mysterious book. Um, subsequent novels, uh, I mean, he, he gained a level of self-consciousness after he became a National Book Award winner. In some respects, he reverted to the like southern, southern man of letters model that his uncle Will had had occupied in the previous generation. He, he had tried to escape it with the moviegoer, and bang, he's brought right back into it, and suddenly he's a spokesman for the South on race and um, the Southern literary tradition and so forth. So his not his subsequent novels are, I would say, much more about. He's about mystery. He, the diagnostician is right in there doing the work, and you can kind of watch him do it. That doesn't mean to say they're not quite strong, but they're not essentially mysterious except odd patches. Uh, there's a patch when Will Barrett goes down underground in The Second Coming that I find really strong and strange. And anyone who's read Murakami's Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, there's a, someone should write a paper on the parallels between those two novels where 
middle-class everyman characters are trapped underground and forced to figure out what their life above ground is, is really about. As I said, I find those pre-moviegoer essays, which are about mystery, also quite mysterious. They're just generated out of I don't know what. After that, his essays, again, are quite strong, but they're more... Um, uh, they're about. They're not especially mysterious. They're about aspects of of our our human situation. You know, the the, the plight of, of the human person in a um, in an impersonal world, that kind of thing. With a couple of exceptions, and one is that novel, that piece about Uncle Will that I mentioned, and uh, where he tries to understand why was his uncle a great achiever of the South. Um, unhappy, and his conclusion is that Will was um, he had a, a thwarted or unanswered um, re religious uh, desire that Percy felt had been fulfilled in his life, but had been um, arrested in, in his uncle's, uh, and so then that becomes Will becomes a sort of a, a type for the modern person who had has so many things but doesn't have this thing that um, that. Judeo-Christian tradition really offers. Uh, so most of the work really becomes about mystery, and then there's passages where the where that bloom or bec become mysterious through the work. But uh, the moviegoer, which was originally apart from his other work and that it belonged to this other publisher, is, is apart from it in that way too. It's it's essentially mysterious. Uh, how exactly? Um, again, thinking about this novel a year ago, I th thought about an account of mystery, literary mystery, given by a novelist a generation younger than Percy, Don DeLillo. He spoke in a, an amazing interview from 1982 uh, of the qualities of novels that emboldened him to write fiction and fiction of a particular kind. There's a drive and a daring that go beyond technical invention. I think it's right to call it a life drive, even though these books deal at times very directly with death. No optimism, no pessimism, no homesickness for lost values or for the way fiction used to be written. These books open out onto some larger mystery. The moviegoer. It's southern, it's Catholic, it's ironic, it's oblique. It doesn't quite add up. What is it about? What has come of Binks Bowling's search? What has prompted Binks to settle down with Kate and embrace everydayness with quasi religious devotion? It's impossible to say, Binks remarks in the last line of the novel proper. It is impossible to say. And yet, the moviegoer, like its central character, has an inner coherence. Its take on everydayness has the quality of wonder that is the novel's true subject. It opens out onto some larger mystery, one that we, no less than he, are still trying to solve. Thank you. I have plenty more to say, but I think it might be said better in the context of conversation. So, uh, and um, Nathaniel suggested that that's the the format that suits this event. Is that right? Yeah, sure. I mean, you can you can keep going, but we're um, we'll have a question and answer now. Yeah, I'll fold what I have to say into into what comes from the floor. I think that'll work well. Any uh, any questions? Yeah. Tom. Have a number of questions, but um, can I ask something about, about mystery and being mysterious? Sure. This distinction. Um, so, as a as an academic philosopher, I'm attracted to those kinds of distinctions. <laughs> so, this is perhaps an inevitable kind of question. Um, it was prompted to think about whether the quality of being about mystery that you identified and associated with the one kind of psychological novel in Hume's terms, whether that has something to do with the ambitions of a novel 
um, to represent the general in the particular. So to give us access to patterns of uh, human life um, that are in some sense instantiated in the particular events, particular characters, and so on. And whether that could be distinguished in some way from uh, the proper quality of a mystery, or the, the being mysterious of, of the aesthetic object itself, where there's some, something um, not fully understandable in terms of those generalities, where the, the particularity of what's being told outstrips our ability to just figure out what it's about, where that's a matter of fitting it into a pattern or a type that could be instantiated elsewhere. The reason I'm attracted to that way of, of thinking about it is in part just thinking about the use of the term mystery in other contexts, in sacramental theology on one hand, uh, in thinking about uh, uh, you know, Christianity as an essentially narrative religion, of, you know, not just about a God who acts in history, but who participates in history. Um, that's sort of you know, why, why I wouldn't want to reduce this just to a familiar set of thoughts about generals and particulars as they turn up in literature. That seem, it seems particular to the, to the very notion of mystery. Right, so, so I'm assuming that, um, so you're in the Fossil Department here and now, right? So you're, you're probably current with all sorts of ideas from a half century after the categories that I introduced you know, were, were themselves current. For example, so when I distinguish, and first of all, I'm, I'm a kind of practical critic, writer, wor working in the dark myself to some extent. So, you know, I'm open to correction and I'm not, I'm not trying to introduce some sort of ironclad distinction. I'm trying to, to, to kind of feel these works and how, how they're working. But I notice as you pose your question that the about mystery versus mysterious in a way seems to prize the less articulate or less um, clear in a way that was pretty common in, in, in modernism. That modernism uh, saw uh, explication as a diminished thing. The modern work that couldn't be understood like was the highest and, the, and all these the, the poem should not mean but be and all these plotting intellectuals then came and explained the hell out of it. Whereas from what little I know of contemporary philosophy that um, distinction has been broken down and we can really understand that people who are working at a high level of articulation and a high level of self-consciousness can also uh, be, be doing something that's essentially mysterious. And it's handy that I quoted Delillo, because Delillo is a novelist who's precisely postmodern in that respect. I mean, he, he's the best explainer there is, and yet his best works um, feel to me that they have a quality that uh, that he himself couldn't explain or couldn't have explained beforehand that he surprised himself with them and other works less so so um, making sense so far that I so I don't I don't want to set up a strict dichotomy like oh if if, if you're good at explaining things that's not mysterious um, and if and if it's inarticulate then it must be mysterious I don't think it's that simple um, I think uh, I was talking with um, Father Gregory on the way over about uh, my still favorite definition of art, Aquinas, wholeness, harmony, and radiance. And that's a, you know, emphatically pre-modern definition of art. The art is, it ha has some sort of wholeness. Uh, there's some sort of harmony between the parts, which is both, you know, you can see it and it's pleasing, which which seems to rule out a whole realm of art which, which is deliberately inharmonious and there's a radiance to it but I would say and we could discuss wholeness, harmony, and radiance and the various translations of that you know, for the rest of the weekend but the radiant quality um, postmodern, pre-modern, modern the art that I'm attracted to has, has a quality of um, being better or more complicated or more uh, more involving than it and it has to be as a functional object and even that 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 surpasses any intentionality on part of the author even a highly intentional author um, and 
Is this speaking to your question at all? Yeah, and I, I tried as carefully as I could to pose it in terms of the, the novels themselves or the aesthetic objects themselves rather than the novelist. Because I do think the thing, what you're picking up on is something where we do want to allow ourselves to talk just about the, um, the novel, you know, and you know, whether we think about that as you know, in the communicative act between the readers and the, whether we reduce the, the emphasis on intentionality by thinking about the communicative act or just about thinking about the sort of aesthetic quality of, of radiance, because it does seem like there needs to be any essential relationship between being a good explainer and um, you know, giving access to, to something in a way that's inarticulate. And then, but when you go, say to O'Connor, just because it's a slightly easier example, um, to write a book about Flannery O'Connor, as I did, is to realize, is to, on a practical level, question the, the privileging of, of imaginative literature. It's becoming increasingly apparent that her greatest character is herself, uh, that the the, the freedom and, the, and the, the vibrancy and the life drive and the metaphorical spray of her letters is ex extraordinary. It's literature, you know? So then you say, well, why, why is, are these amazing letters just considered commentary in this novel that I don't think quite works that is the subject of the letters, you know, up here as fiction? So um, that, that whole distinction and I know it's been worried by a lot of people in literature and philosophy. I'm just saying on a practical level, trying to write a biography, it's not some pokey question about does the work enhance the life or whatever. It's you're looking at these texts and just and, and feeling the, that they have similar qualities of, uh, uh, and that the distinction between the fic fiction and the nonfiction or the, the art and the um, self-explication breaks down. And then... And I, I want to stop talking here for a minute, but and especially um, then when you consider these works in terms of the Christian literature, say a pilgrimage, um, it, those works are often you know, supposedly autobiographical, but are laid on with patterns that are drawn from other books. And so, the, so in some respects, the Christian literature, in the sense in which I tried to you know, develop it in my book has never recognized those distinctions. You know, someone like uh, Dorothy Day is on a pattern that comes from Teresa Avila and Teresa Lisieux and the Bible and Dostoevsky, and, and she, she's, she's doing an imitation of, of Christ, but it's Christ that she's read about in some Russian novel. <laughs> you know, so, so, and that's a strength of our tradition is that we're not, um, we never block things out into those categories. Other questions? Natalie. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I was interested that you mentioned at some point the moviegoer and its relation to existentialism. I guess I just want to hear a little bit more about that because I guess my feeling as I read the moviegoer felt very similar to, similar to reading something like The Stranger, just kind of like how I feel about the protagonist and I search for meaning and also just like to get your life together. <laughs> like, what the heck are you doing? Sort of. <laughs> Well, first of all, the moviegoer is expressly modeled on the stranger, and I developed this in the life you say may be your own. Um, the stranger was published, uh, you know, shortly after the war by Knopf. Uh, um, the, f the first letter is first line, Maman died today. So the um, protagonist of The Stranger gets a note saying that his mother died, I think. It's a, it's a piece of correspondence, right? Not a phone call. This morning I got a note from my aunt asking me to come for lunch. Anyway, the, the, there's a kind of double opening to the moviegoer that gestures towards Camus. Uh, it's, it's expressly there. And then the title, which of course got some suggesting from the editor. So we go from The Stranger to the moviegoer to the sports writer. Uh, it's right there. Existentialism more generally, Percy was really um, steeped in, in mid-century existentialism. He read, really read a lot of Kierkegaard. He read, and I think it's equally important, a lot of Marcel. He read existentialist fiction. 
um, a lot of French fiction. And he was reading um, the current uh, working out of existentialism, what it meant for Catholic philosophy and everything else, uh, in journals like Thought and in books like Philosophy and a New Key by Suzanne Langer. Um, there's no question that uh, the, the, and if I'm oversimplifying here, please, I, I have a kind of graduate school knowledge of existentialism, but okay, uh, what, what's this novel going to be? Um, a person in a situation who has to decide and whose decision has implications for our apprehension of reality and not just for that person's particular life. Um, tradition can't help. Uh, wise people can't help. Uh, at some level, there's the burden of choice and, and its implications. Is that a fair summary of existentialism as it might, might figure into fiction? So that's, that's, it's right there in the moviegoer. I guess I think the, 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 the grass is very high in this sort of Percy and existentialism world because he, he attributed his work to existentialism so much, partly because it was true and partly because in ways that are difficult for us to understand 60 years on, the, the, the danger of being kind of labeled a regional novelist was very great. So to, to gesture and even over-gesture towards other influences was really important. That's not to say they weren't really there. But so even after I wrote this piece, my um, twin sons were reading The Great Gatsby. And I saw connections between The Gatsby and uh, The Moviegoer that I hadn't glimpsed previously. And that Percy, um, I don't, to my knowledge, he didn't say he was look, looking at Gatsby at all. But I think he was. But that's that's like comparing your book to Catcher in the Rye. You know, it, it's like a no-go zone. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so that wasn't a useful comparison to, for him to make in that particular moment. Uh, so he, so just to sum up, it's definitely a strongly existential novel. Percy said so in all sorts of ways. A, a generation or two generations of critics have hopped on that in a way that's really fruitful, but also has to be kept in check so that we don't um, overread the novel in terms of existentialism when he had these functional reasons for stressing its existentialist qualities also. No questions. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the passage from The Message in a Bottle where he talks about how man is a castaway and that um, he's looking for news from across the seas. Uh, but he spends a lot of his time kind of absorbed in island news. But he recognized the fact that he's, you know, he's still open to the prospect of or in search of news from across the seas. And I'm thinking about specifically the moviegoer and you know what you described as kind of mundane or otherwise like unimpressive day-to-day events. Um, and a lot of that just kind of comes through by way of boredom or aimlessness or malaise of a sort. And I wonder why that has been, maybe in like the last 50 years, why boredom, aimlessness, um, or malaise, here I'm thinking of like David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, why that has been chosen as a kind of privileged means or privileged place of encounter with mystery or with mysterious. And I kind of have this like this notion of being a castaway, being, being homeless, um, and how modern man is you know, of, of the mind that he's at home, when in fact he's homeless, which is what, like, Percy describes as despair. So maybe, yeah, just a word about why malaise, why, why boredom, why this as a, as a chosen means. It's a really good question. There's a uh, bus kiosk ad around New York now that um, it says, like, take a break from your eternal boredom. And then what it's a TV show or something that's being advertised uh, that, that is going to break you out of your boredom. Uh, three things come to mind that, that are not connected, really. Maybe they will connect. One is that um, I think the, um, the idea that the literature of boredom is really strong in the last third of a century um, has some truth to it. 
but has also been exaggerated by critics who've seized on that one quality. When you, when you look at the books themselves, especially when you look at the books after the author is dead, like Wallace, you, s- you see that uh, how much is not about boredom, but is about vitality, I think. Um, it's sort of like work that looks strange when it comes out all looks more realistic with the passage of time. So that work that doesn't go to the usual pressure points of drama or action because it's innovative, with the passage of time you can see how, how dramatic it is because, because your, our categories have been altered or enlarged. So I'm not saying there's not a lot of reflection on boredom in Wallace's work, but that that's, that became a sort of tag for him that didn't honor you know, 600 or some pages of that 1,000-page book. Um, so there's a remarkable essay um, by Frederick Bartholomew published in about 88 in the front of the New York Times book review called Convicted Minimalist Spills Bean <laughs> and it's this truly great piece uh, in which he's like you call us minimalists here's why we've tried to do things and he writes this incredibly vital, rip-roaring, energetic, non-minimal account of why he and a bunch of other writers went to this extreme to try to get the old verities going in their fiction. They wanted epiphany, they wanted heartbreak, they wanted um, drama and the usual paths were exhausted. So they went into this other area. And it's the best, still the best thing I've ever read on. It's, it's more about minimalism, but the, the charge of minimalism and the charge of kind of love of boredom or despair are, were similar charges in, in the discussion of fiction in the last third of the century, so that it's opposite. Then there's a Christian or Catholic point to this, which is that I, when I was in Fordham, I had this philosophy professor named Professor Baumgarth, he would, he'd make a statement and I would raise my hand and I would point out an exception and he said Mr. Eli you know they called us Mr. and Ms. you must understand that generalization is an intellectual tool and you hope to gain in analytical power what you lose in precision and I still hate generalizations <laughs> but, uh, but my experience of um, the Catholic or Christian community is that the, the the point of boredom hasn't arrived. That the problem in this community is of too much meaning and, and competing meanings and how to sort out and prioritize and order and make sense of all the meaning that's, that's, that, that's flowing through our lives or that we're feeling in the midst of. And that that's um, part of the attraction of working in this particular area is that the kind of bored dropout narrative um, is, is not yet ours. That's a hugely broad generalization, but um, but it, it's something that I have noticed over the decades, and so maybe it's you know su- suggests that that we've got something. Can you They were more real than he is because... Because they're seen. We're like watched. Right. And it seems that some aspect of his malaise is the sense of meaningless because what he does isn't seen. And then people who are kind of observing life happen to real people whose life is observed by others, even though he knows the characters aren't real in the movies or that kind of thing. And I was wondering if there's some... So the way that I extrapolated to myself of how you make sense of this in your own life is kind of like a choice of this you type of thing, like making sense of a little way insofar as it does matter if you're seeing, but the Christian sees that as the divine gaze. So if other people don't see it, it's okay, because God sees me. But I was wondering if you think there's any justification for that. Would Percy agree with that, or would he... Like, is there anything else that he wrote, I suppose, that... 
I mean, I was going to answer in the Therese of Lisieux way. I mean, it, in important respects, the movement of the book is from uh, a person who feels diminished because he's living an unseen life to one who embraces the little way and and the implication that it, that he's being seen in a, in a different light. I think it's a beautiful, powerful, and true way to see the novel. The novel stands at a moment when the sense of the power of the image in our society was just metastasizing. Daniel Borston had a book called The Image, published in 1960, you know, within months of the moviegoer by Random House. Uh, I think the part of the, the power of strangeness of the book is that um, it it's about that and not what people expected a Southern novel um, to be about. The title moves the novel and our expectations for the novel out of the South. It intimates that this novel set in New Orleans, the region's most storied city, isn't about history or legacy, isn't about place at all. It's about how we see things, a novel of perception and sensibility, dealing with the search for authenticity in a scripted, stylized, mediated world. So that's where he begins. He ends in the moviegoer with this little way. Um, Binks will settle down. He'll live with Kate. Uh, they will make each other safe and a little bit happy. Uh, and and that's, that's real and that's authentic. So where did Percy go from there? And there's millions of words that followed. But I think that... Um, And this is both the strength and, and the weakness of Percy's subsequent work, is that uh, um, he, he then um, went on to diagnose the modern malaise, as he called it. And he pointed to all sorts of evidence about the modern malaise. But he himself no longer had the malaise. He was not in touch with his, with his malaise anymore so much. When he tried, it, it had... It, it wasn't as real as it is here. He, he had his purpose, novelist and, and public philosopher. Uh, so he reflected a great deal on the modern malaise. Uh, he attributed it to uh, atomization, too much television, uh, birth control, uh, everybody's house is looking alike. Um, televised religion, and on and on and on. But uh, the solution was always some um, form of really thoughtful Judeo-Christianity. And it's, you know, I, I find it really attractive. I, I, I believe it. I wrote a book about it. But, um, but, but he doesn't really go there effectively the way he did in the moviegoer. Is that fair to others? In the, in the eyes of others who know, who know Percy's work? Well, I'd be interested to hear what, uh, how you would say his treatment of the lays in Love and the Ruins, uh, what your critique might be of that. And then also, you talked some about um, his literary influences. I'm curious to hear some thoughts about how he's influenced others. Uh, you were mentioning Galillo, and I was wondering if White and Ways might have been influenced by Love and the Ruins They both start on the hill. The college on the hill, and there's a kind of ruins on the hill, right, that begin Love in the Ruins. So Love in the Ruins, which is Percy's third novel, it came out in the early 70s. In The Life You Save Maybe Your Own, I propose in the way of literary biography, which is to do it narratively, that the novel was inspired by Percy's visit to Thomas Merton at the Abbey of Gethsemane. He expected to find the literary Trappist monk he found Merton wearing a, a denim uh, overalls with a 35-millimeter uh, camera on his neck and a bottle of bourbon in his pocket. And I'm just saying this now for the first time, but like, and for Percy, there the 60s began. <laughs> you know, even his hero, the literary monk, has kind of gone native. Uh, and the sorting out of, a, like, f falling apart of traditional society uh, becomes the preoccupation of love in the ruins. Isn't that right? Um, I guess, 
And I don't want to sound overly harsh on Percy's work. I just, I'm so used to being in rooms with, with total true believers in O'Connor or Percy that I kind of push back. And I think Love in the Ruins is, um, Percy's attempt to do a novel in which the center is not holding, but his sense of order is just too great. <laughs> that it, it's, it, it, there's a lot of great stuff in there, but it doesn't, it doesn't have a real feeling of breakdown to me. Um, that, uh, that um, I'm trying to think of a work that really does. Um, so, so then, the connection with White Noise. So White Noise is from early 84 by DeLillo. To me, the um, genius move of DeLillo, which was then picked up by Jonathan Franzen, who has put it in the terms I'm about to put it, is to write about Dionysian material in an Apollonian form. So the, previous, the generation previous to uh, DeLillo and even his contemporary Thomas Pynchon, they, they tried to write about chaos and by using chaos, chaotic forms. You know, Gravity's Rainbow or Gaddis, big, big novels that test the notion of significant form. So DeLillo, and here it's not incidental that he's what I call a crypto-Catholic, is that he, except for in his um, book, uh, Ratner's Star, he doesn't really try to do that. There's always a strong sense of form in DeLillo's books. And White Noise is a, I mean, it's formally as tight as an Emily Dickinson poem. It's 285 pages, and there's not a word that's out of place or not controlled. And it's about this toxic events and the world falling apart, and the thing is just a perfect, perfectly stitched, joined work. And so then Franzen took that model, like, okay, we're not going to go the way of formal chaos. I'm going to write a, a beautiful thing about fucked up people, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's Franzen. Uh, and so Percy was in a sort of middle place where he, he tried to go into the chaos, but he's just, he, he's too traditionally well-educated to really let it rip, I think, in that book. Does that speak to your question at all? One last question, yeah. In the, uh, the moviegoer, the person who's addressing me, as he stated, it's an honest restatement of the Judeo Christian faith. Can you say something about his later works in terms of his mild critique of movies as affecting the moral imagination, particularly as he, after Love and the Ruins, when he becomes more addressing the, the chaos of society with? so clear what you know, you, you already, part of my answer would have been what you said, which is Percy, Percy's movie-going time was really um, in college and afterward. Uh, once, uh, he was, you know, by conventional standards, the lead starter. He was born in 1916, and the moviegoer um, hit and got the prize in 1961, so that's a uh, what if he's 45 years old? He's he, he had children relatively. You know, he was he was an older father, so uh, so the 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 moviegoer, which looks forward in its sense of the the tyranny of the image, was drawing on his past experience as a moviegoer, and then he stopped going to the movies so much. He became a bit of a kind of traditional father. He watched a lot of television. To me, the most um, beautiful expression of, of his true passion for television. He liked to watch The Incredible Hulk, which was on Friday nights in the 70s. And the story of The Incredible Hulk is of a, a doctor who catches a disease and is given these Hulk powers. Isn't that right? Well, that's what happened to Percy. <laughs> He's a doctor who got the disease. 
and then he becomes a novelist. So in a weird way, the story of the Incredible Hulk is the story of Walker Percy, and he's watching this kind of shocky retelling of it every Friday night. But um, I do think that he, he the there's several points in his nonfiction where he refers to himself as a moralist. And then people like Robert Coles, who was um, one of his most visible expositors and wrote a long New Yorker profile of him, really kind of flattered that sense of himself as a moralist. And ultimately, he was invited to join the Pontifical Council for Social Sciences. So he did just the, the, the inner um, traditional upholder of traditional values that that is kept in check or pushed against in the moviegoer comes back in, especially in the later work, in just the ways that you're detecting. And um, partly he was just out of touch. Does that answer the question? Well, thank you very much uh, for uh, a stimulating comment. Thank you.